Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm joined by my colleague, Max Linsky. Aaron is away on vacation. That's the first time you've ever called me your colleague. No. Yeah. It means a lot. It took us, uh, took us like, what, 11 years? And now I am your, uh, your colleague. What an honor. You've really stepped up in my eyes recently. Finally, I've earned your respect. Really, uh, really means a lot. Well, my friend, my colleague, my compatriot, who is on the program this week? On the program this week is Heidi Blake. Um, Heidi is currently a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Prior to that, she was an investigative reporter and ran the global investigations team for BuzzFeed News out of the UK. They did an incredible series of stories about the deaths of Russian dissidents in London, which became a book for her called From Russia with Blood. Amazing book. Reads like a spy novel. Highly recommend. Sounds like a spy novel. It's it's unbelievable. Um, there's also a docu-series out of that called Once Upon a Time in London Grad. And she also, back when she was at the Sunday Times UK, she blew the lid off of corruption at FIFA, wrote a book about that. So she's done a lot of amazing investigations. She had a great story in The New Yorker recently called The Fugitive Princesses of Dubai, which is kind of what prompted my reaching out to her. And... We had a chance to talk about that and everything else. It sounds like it hits so many of your interests, including soccer. Yeah. That's a perfect storm for you. Yeah. Assassinations, soccer, kidnappings, spies. These are all in my interests. Well, I know your interests because we're colleagues. <laughs> we also have colleagues at Vox Media. We make the show with them. Thanks very much to them. And now here is Evan with Heidi Blake. Heidi, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start by talking about this most recent New Yorker story, both because I was absolutely transfixed by the story, but also because I think it sort of encapsulates a lot of the investigation that you do. Like, there's just a lot wrapped up in this. And maybe we could just summarize it a little bit to try to explain what exactly the story is about? The story is about four women who were members of the Dubai royal family and who risked everything, risked life and limb in a very literal way to try to escape the control of its ruler, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who's the Emir of Dubai and the Prime Minister of the UAE. And a lot of people are somewhat familiar with the story of his daughter, Sheikha Latifa, who fled the country in 2018 in this kind of extraordinarily daring escape mission involving jet skis and underwater scooters and like a yacht, you know, sailed by like an ex-French Navy officer who claims to be a spy. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like just this extraordinarily daring and incredible effort by her to get away. And then she was forcibly returned to Dubai after her father sent Indian commandos to storm the yacht and return her to the country where she was held in prison. And this attracted a fair amount of attention. But there were some big questions when I embarked on the reporting about like what had actually happened to her thereafter, that I wanted to get to the bottom of. And then there are these other women. So Latifa's sister, Shamza, who had tried to escape 20 years previously, and had herself been captured and kidnapped from the 
streets of the UK and returned to Dubai and, and held in prison. And actually, it sort of turned out that a lot of Latifa's reason for wanting to get away was to try to get help for her sister, who was still incarcerated and under sedation all those years later. And then there are these two other women who had similarly you know, made bids to escape and risk a huge amount in the process. And so the story kind of looks at why it is that these royal women felt this kind of desperate need to escape the control of Sheikh Mohammed, while at the same time he has, you know, kind of staked his reputation on making a lot of promises about transforming Dubai into like a world leader for gender equality and making Dubai a, a wonderful place to be a woman, and removing all of the obstacles women face in society. That's a really central part of his plan to kind of propel Dubai and the UAE to the top of the world economic order. And it's very much at odds with the experiences of these women within his own family. There are different points at which this was sort of international news, you know, one of the sisters situations, and then years later, the other sister's situation. And then there's also the Sheikh's younger wife, and there's a whole incident around that. And do you remember sort of when you decided that there's a story of all these together that needs to be told, or you felt like you could go report in a way that would bring something new to something that a lot of people maybe had heard about? Yeah, so I I first kind of happened upon this story sort of in a, in a strange way. So it was like back in 2017, it was before Latifa had made her escape attempt. Um, and I was talking to a retired British cop who was I, I was I was actually talking to him for another story, a story about Russian assassinations on British soil, which were covered up by the authorities for national security reasons. And I asked him whether any other occasions when he was aware as a police officer of having had an investigation squashed by the government for sort of diplomatic reasons. And the one example he cited was a case around 2001 when a sex worker had escaped from a residence owned by Sheikh Mohammed in the UK and had alleged that she had been held there and, and raped repeatedly and subjected to a terrible ordeal. But that when he set out to investigate, he was called in by an officer in the special branch division of the police, which is like the sort of security cleared branch that interfaces with the spies, and was told that this is all being handled government to government, and this woman has been paid for her time, and therefore Her Majesty's favourite sport will continue in this country, was the quote he gave me, uh, because Sheikh Mohammed is a major racehorse owner and was very close friends with the Queen, who herself uh, had a great love of horse racing. And so that was the first time Sheikh Mohammed was on my radar, and I just thought like that was an extraordinary story and something I kind of put a pin in because I was busy with something else at the time but decided I wanted to kind of go back to and look at and was interested in were there other occasions when he sort of leveraged his relationship with the Queen and with the British government and so then when the following year news broke of Latifa's attempted escape, you know, I, I obviously immediately kind of put the two things together and was very interested to watch the reaction of the international community and of the British government and the US government to see kind of how, to what extent are they going to stand up and be counted here. And this unfortunately is a story in which at every turn, the women who fell victim to Sheikh Mohammed's brutal behaviour were let down by Western governments who always chose to look the other way rather than antagonize a key ally. Yeah, that, I mean, it's funny you bring up the police officer who who said, oh yeah, I got a call from the special branch, because that was such a striking part of the story to me that it wasn't just him, there was another retired officer who also said something like, oh, all these decisions are made above my pay grade, you know? Mm -hmm. But to get that kind of candid admission of political interference in 
these police investigations? Is that something you've come to expect after your reporting in the past or it still surprises or shocks you? That was really surprising to me. Like, really, one of the most astonishing things for me about reporting this story out was just hearing a number of British officials in, in a variety of different roles speaking pretty boldly about the extent to which the British government had squashed not one but two police investigations into really outrageous alleged crimes on British soil against women by Sheikh Mohammed or other members of the Dubai royal family for very nakedly self-interested diplomatic and economic reasons. And a variety of former foreign office officials and ministers spoke to me about the kind of extent to which the British government is sort of beholden to the UAE and other Gulf states because of their role as major oil exporters, because they have invested billions and billions of pounds in the British economy. But it, it was unusual to hear that sort of moral trade-off being described in such clear terms. Yeah, I feel like the cops are always, in my experience, they're always trying to say, they all tried to stop me and I found a way around them to do the investigation anyway. They're not usually saying, well, they told me to stop. And so I stopped. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That surprised me. And I think that DCI David Beck, who was the police officer who investigated Princess Shams's disappearance, that was Latifa's old sister who ran away in the UK in the year 2000, and then was captured on the streets of Cambridge and returned to Dubai against her will. And Shamsa really showed enormous um, kind of resources in managing several times to report her own disappearance and abduction to the British authorities. Um, and yet the police had done nothing. And I think that David Beck, you know, years later, feels very troubled by the fact that this woman who was at the time 18 and is now a woman in her early 40s had been so badly let down. And yet, when I kind of probed him on, well, what did you do to push back when the government told you that, you know, you weren't going to be allowed to investigate further by traveling to Dubai? And he just kind of said, well, yeah, those decisions are made above my pay grade. You just have to go with it. And it was, yeah, that was pretty astonishing to me. And particularly because two of the people who were involved in Chandra's abduction were British citizens who still live in Britain, who I was able to go and track down. Um, they very much refused to speak with me, but they're sitting there in plain sight. They have been accused of being accessories to a kidnap and they've never even been approached or interviewed or spoken to by the police about this, um, which just, I find really extraordinary. Well, speaking of tracking people down, you tracked down the chauffeurs for the Sheikh or royal family members in the UK who are bringing sex workers into their residence. And there's some harrowing stories around that. And uh, just for people who might not understand, like, can you walk us through how you found them and then got them to reveal these stories that were obviously on their conscience? Yeah, so I, because my interest in this story originated from that tip from Detective Colin Sutton about the sex worker who said that she had been kidnapped and held captive at one of Sheikh Mohammed's properties, part of that story was that she described having been driven there by a chauffeur. And so I was interested in, like, was that a pattern? Like, was that happening um, elsewhere? And also just interested, it's always very interesting with wealthy and powerful people to try to speak to domestic staff or support staff because they see an awful lot. And to an extent, these people in these kind of service roles are sometimes not seen as sort of fully 
like human it's like their humanity is not quite understood or recognized by the people who use their services and so you know they're sort of treated almost just like furniture or wallpaper and they see an awful lot um and so it's always interesting to try to talk to those people i managed to find one because he brought an unfair dismissal claim against the company that sheikh mohammed uses to employ his domestic staff i kind of sent him an email and he called me and started talking and he had so much to get off his chest and before I'd even asked any questions he told me about how they were being asked to bring sex workers to Dalham Hall, which is Sheikh Mohammed's new market property, kind of like almost on a conveyor belt, just kind of, you know, limousines full of 10 women at a time being picked up from London and brought to the house almost every night. Um, Really harrowing scenes of some women sort of being very unhappy and trying to get away and in one case being beaten. Um after trying to escape the house. Um, And, you know, he had an awful lot that he was kind of holding. um, And actually, I think probably a lot of guilt about his role in all of that. And once he started talking, sort of couldn't stop. Um, And then there were others I managed to reach out to via LinkedIn, which can be a really amazing source of information on, on sources. It's kind of extraordinary the extent to which you can filter searches for kind of people who have left a particular company in a particular time period and so you can kind of figure out oh like look all of these people who are chauffeurs or close protection officers or housekeepers have all left recently or were all there at the time that this other story was told to me about the sex worker who escaped in 2001 and you can reach out to people and it's kind of a numbers game like you reach out to like 200 people and three people get back to you um you know but it was really um kind of chilling for me I think to sit with you know these these men who were you know in the case of Jerry Sinabad who was one of the men I spoke with um a really personable and kind of kindly older man who was quite reflective about what he'd been involved with and certainly had a kind of keen sense of the suffering of the women who'd been involved uh, you know and was kind of trying to reckon with his part in it and there was one moment where I was sitting with him and another of the drivers, a guy called Godwin Nimrod, um, and they were sort of just in front of me. We were all, we were like in a pub in Knightsbridge and they were drinking brandy and they were kind of sharing fond anecdotes about Sheikh Mohammed, saying, you know, he's a nice guy. And they both had felt very moved that he would invite them into his dining room to eat from his table once he'd finished his meal and he would remember details of their families and he would stop and ask how they were and remember their names and they called him Sheikh Mo and they had a real fondness for him but then Juro one of the two of them kind of cut across and said no this is these kind of niceties are all to cover the nasty part of the character and like we can't forget what he did to those young women Um, and they were just kind of wrestling with it in real time really. Yeah uh, that sounds like an extraordinary interview. Yeah it was it was it was kind of amazing to it's pretty unusual, um, I think, as a journalist, in my experience anyway, to sit with people who are describing something that they were kind of, to some extent, complicit with and involved with, and kind of still feel that amount of ambivalence about it. You know, sometimes people make a decision to blow the whistle and they they feel very sort of morally convicted about what they're doing. And sometimes, you know, people talk to you about things other people have done, but they they were really kind of in the process of working it through um and I think that was pretty painful for some of them and I you know Juro I mean one of the drivers had you know he'd actually talked to me about one of the young women who he'd driven her all the way back to London one night and all of the other sex workers had got out of the car in this this one quite sort of 
late teens young woman was still sitting in the back of his car and was kind of shivering and crying and he described how there was blood on the seat and he went back to comfort her and this didn't actually make it into the story but he talked to me about how he'd taken her home with him and let her because she was frightened to go home and face her parents and had let her kind of rest up in his flat until morning and then she'd kind of slipped away so he'd been concerned enough to do that you know but then had continued to be a part of that kind of operation for many years after that so there was this real kind of ambiguity there another thing that sort of made the story for me was just the level of detail that you had about Latifa's situation inside the royal family when she's living in Dubai and you you write in there how you drew from hundreds of letters emails texts audio messages that she had sent to friends mm -hmm. over this whole decade and how did you sort of come by that material and then sort of manage that material in the process of your reporting so I guess, first of all, I have to be slightly careful just about describing source material because there are elements of confidentiality around some of it. But, you know, I was able to speak with a lot of people who'd been in contact with Latifa and had been very close with her at different points in her life. And she had corresponded very extensively um, with friends about what had been going on. I mean, you know, that one of those kind of threads of correspondence was that she'd contacted this French-American marine engineer and ex-naval officer called Hervé Jaubert, who was the guy who ultimately extracted her aboard this yacht in this kind of doomed rescue mission. But they had actually corresponded for about seven years about her plans to escape. And so there was a huge amount of detail in those emails because she was really just pouring her heart out to him. And I, at that point, nobody else knew what she was planning to do. And, you know, she was kind of, you know, determinedly not rocking the boat with her family because she had a very small measure of freedom, which enabled her to kind of plan and to meet accomplices of his to hand off cash and various other things that she needed to be able to do to make the escape. Um, she just had no other outlet for this. She wasn't talking to anybody else about it. And so she was really pouring out her heart about what was going on in the family and what had happened to her in her life leading up to that moment to make her so desperate to escape mm -hmm. and then actually once she was captured at sea aboard the yacht and returned to Dubai and, and held first in a high security prison and then later in a villa that had been converted into a prison of its own she made a very concerted effort to document what had happened to her in her life and she really wrote many tens of thousands of words in letters and in kind of various written accounts of different chapters of her life. Um, and she very explicitly was saying to her supporters, I, I will not allow them to erase what has happened to me. And I want the world to know. And she was chronicling her experience very deliberately. And so I, I really kind of pieced together a timeline from her own writings of the things that had happened to her and that was kind of one of the ironies of the story is that you know now she ostensibly has adopted the position that she doesn't want any of this information to be in the public domain like she um there's a law firm which says it represents her which tells anybody who speaks out about Latifa's story that she just wants to live a quiet and private life now and that seems so strikingly at odds with this effort over many, many years to record what had happened and very explicitly to say, I will not allow them to erase this. They're trying to erase this and I won't allow them to do it to me. This happened and the world should know about it. And so that it felt important to me to honor that desire on her part to, to get the story out. Yeah, but it creates this interesting 
conflict that I'm wondering how you thought through, which is, I, I mean, she didn't explicitly disavow those previous statements or letters or audio or video, but how do you sort of figure out how you do justice to the person that she was when she was writing those, if the person that she is now might disavow those letters? Yeah, I mean, I really wrestled with that a lot and spent a lot of time thinking about that and talking that through with colleagues. And I ultimately felt that Latifa over two decades of her life had been utterly determined to escape Dubai, escape her father's control and make sure the world heard her story. And, you know, subsequently, she has ostensibly been released from her captivity after two decades of intermittent abuse and torture and, and imprisonment. And the, the government of Dubai now claim that she is living freely in Dubai and is happy and is living her own life and just wants to be left alone to live quietly. She doesn't want any more publicity about her story. Various statements to that effect have been issued in her name. But it seems to me very clear that this is a woman who's, you know, has been under extreme duress for most of her life. And she remains under duress. She remains in a country controlled by her father, where her liberty could be taken away from her at any point, and where she has very, very few choices, and where, you know, nobody in Dubai has full freedom of expression, let alone somebody in Latifa's position. And so given the clear and obvious duress that Latifa has been under and appears to continue to be under, I would find it very difficult to accept at face value any kind of statements being made in her name now to the effect that she would disavow statements that she had made very, very consistently over two decades in, in many different forms to many different people, that it was death or freedom for her, that there was no alternative, that like she was absolutely not prepared to accept any other outcome than than total emancipation from her father's control. Um, you know, I, I of course made every effort to reach out to her myself and I said to the the various lawyers who who say that they represent her that you know she wanted to speak with me directly to tell me that she disavowed anything or that she didn't want anything published or you know that, that we could absolutely have that conversation directly but that I would need to hear it from her mm -hmm. um that did not happen you know and I know that for friends of hers who were supporters of hers for many many years until she sort of suddenly lost contact while she was in prison the thing that makes it hard for them to accept this claim that she's now free and living happily in Dubai is that she hasn't even sent them a single message. You know, it would be so easy for her if she really was free just to text them or call them herself and say, you know, I'm fine, you can stop worrying, but she hasn't done that. Um, and I do think that speaks volumes. Yeah, but there's such a poignant moment in there where some of the people who have been working to engineer her freedom or at least advocate for her freedom one of them sort of says, well, it's all a bit ridiculous. Like they're saying she doesn't want to be free. We're not in touch with her anymore. What are we supposed to do now? You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think they did. They did feel that it became untenable to continue sort of actively campaigning for her because the government was producing photographs of Latifa apparently traveling the world with friends. Those friends were people who had previously been selected to be allowed to spend time with her before her escape attempt and after she had previously been held in prison for trying to escape her, you know, another time during her teens, which I think is, is interesting. But, you know, there were photos emerging of Latifa apparently out socialising. And I think 
it made it pretty difficult for them to continue saying that she needed to be freed. But I, you know, certainly the people who worked and campaigned for years to free her feel a lot of cognitive dissonance about this. And I have been left feeling very kind of confused and adrift, I think. One of the aspects of the story that really, it seemed to connect a lot with your previous work, it's interesting you say that they kind of, it came from when you're working on the Russia story and from this retired police officer who came up with the Russia story. But in the Dubai story, you have a UK government that is a bit meekly looking into these kidnappings while the UAE government is pressuring them behind the scenes to make it all go away. And in the Russia story, in both From Russia With Blood and in the documentary Once Upon a Time in London Grad, you have the UK government sort of meekly looking into the deaths of all these dissidents, and they're trying to maintain a relationship with Putin at the time. And I wondered, when you're working on these, did you think to yourself, wow, this is in some sense the same story? Yeah, there's definitely a common thread between the two stories, and that you have kind of local police detectives who kind of stumble into a crime scene where in fact they find themselves up against you know kind of international forces that they are just absolutely not equal to contending with and yeah that was very much a big theme in the work I did on Russian assassinations in Britain. I think a difference here actually is that one of the things we really struggled to find in our reporting on Russian assassinations was a police officer who was prepared to come out and say yes the government sat on my investigation. You know there were in case after case that we looked at, there were just the most extraordinary examples of police investigations that had been shuttered in situations that just absolutely beggared belief. You know, there was like, there was a government scientist who had just been investigating Russian nuclear facilities and had been involved in exposing the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko in London, who was found stabbed to death multiple times at his home with two different knives, one of which was left in the sink you know, nowhere near his body. And the police had just immediately ruled it a suicide without any investigation. There was another case where a a man who had called the police repeatedly to warn them that he was being tailed by a team of Russian hitmen fell out of his window and was impaled on the, the wrought iron fence beneath his penthouse apartment. And the police turned up, they didn't even dust for fingerprints, they didn't check for CCTV, they did absolutely no investigation whatsoever. They just shut the whole thing down and called it a suicide. And that happened just kind of time and again. And we had plenty of intelligence sources who were saying, you know, the government does not want these cases investigated. We don't want to antagonize Russia. We don't want to get into a huge diplomatic standoff. But actually, it was very difficult to get any of those small town cops to say, yes, our investigation was squashed. And that was different in the Dubai piece. It was kind of amazing to have two separate police detectives standing up and saying, yeah, the government killed my investigation. And it was refreshing and sort of cathartic. I think after spending four years uh, on the on the Russian assassination trail, sort of trying to um, get a police officer to kind of stand up and be counted on that point to actually have that happen in this story. Uh, I was glad for it. The theme of sort of individuals who are sacrificed, or at least investigations into their deaths are sacrificed in the name of geopolitical concerns, global economic interests, that seems to come up strongly in your reporting. And your job has been to uncover it. But once you uncover it, how jaded does it make you about the worlds that you're covering? That is such a great question, because I definitely feel as an investigative reporter, 
you know that I I feel I feel very driven by my own capacity for like shock and outrage and you know genuinely feeling like this is unbelievable and that kind of like makes me want to keep digging and once I stop feeling that on any given topic I kind of lose interest and so I've always been a generalist and I just kind of rove from one topic to the next and I'm always kind of finding myself in new territory where I know absolutely nothing about the thing I'm starting to dig into and kind of have to try and play catch up and get my head around something new because I do you know I, I kind of I guess I could have carried on investigating Russia's global assassinations campaign there's certainly plenty of material to continue um, <laughs> delving into but I did get to a point where I felt like yeah this doesn't shock me anymore it is outrageous but it doesn't shock me I think what was different about the story of the the Dubai princesses was that there was an element in the reporting on Russian assassinations I, I guess there was a sense that some of those individuals who were pretty brazenly assassinated had tangled with pretty dark forces themselves like they had got themselves involved with major international money laundering cartels or they had you know in, in the case of say Boris Berezovsky who was kind of like the godfather of the Russian oligarchs who filled his boots in the kind of smash and grab post-communist era where the Russian state was thoroughly looted by Boris Yeltsin's cronies you know he was chief amongst those those kind of robber barons and then and then came to the UK having made a pretty dirty fortune and spent you know, a decade and a half kind of taking pot shots at the Kremlin from their relative safety, or so he thought, of British soil. And, you know, he met an untimely end. And there's a, certainly something that a lot of people said to me was like, well, you know, is it really surprising that that happens to somebody who is so exposed and who's so entangled himself in a very kind of dirty game? And I think, you know, that a lot of the intelligence sources that we spoke to kind of said, is the British government really supposed to kind of sacrifice British interests at a much broader scale for the sake of, you know, a handful of robber barons who have met an untimely end in Britain? And I certainly don't agree with that. I think that we saw the upshot of looking the other way, you know, in what happened in Salisbury, where you end up with Russia feeling so emboldened by British inaction that it actually feels it can brazenly expose hundreds of members of the public to a deadly chemical weapon because it so so doesn't believe that the British government is going to stand up to that kind of outrageous aggression. And so that's the reason why it's important not to just look the other way when you know outrageous acts are carried out on British soil by foreign powers. But I think what was different about the Dubai story was that these women were just unquestionably innocent. These were women who did not ask to be born into that family, who had not made any choice to entangle themselves in that world, and who, you know, in early adulthood, or in some cases even earlier, had really made an effort to get away and, and were prepared to sacrifice all of the apparent privilege of being a member of, of a Gulf royal family just in exchange for their freedom. You know, Shamza was living in hostels in South London after she ran away, and Latifa was saying, look, I don't care if I have to flip burgers for the rest of my life. I want my freedom. Um, and when they were blatantly kidnapped in kind of shockingly violent ways, you know, in, in Latifa's case in international waters, in Shams's case on British soil, in the case of uh, Sheikha Bushra, who's another royal woman from Dubai mentioned in the story who was kidnapped in Britain, you know, the government absolutely failed to uphold their basic human rights. And I think the shocking thing for me there was that sense of like if you're a woman if you're a member of one of these families like where do you turn what recourse do you have who is going to help you 
And I, I think the answer is no one. I want to go back to your your sense of shock and outrage that drives you into these stories. Do you have a sense of where that comes from for you, or at least when it was first kind of activated for you? That's a great question. I, I have spent time sort of talking to colleagues about about the number of people who end up working in investigative journalism who have at some point in their own childhood kind of had some experience of injustice or ended up sort of with a reason to distrust authority and kind of found their way into this profession where you spend your time sort of chucking rocks up at, you know, the powers that be in the world. I think there's a kind of interesting trend there. Um, And, you know, certainly I would say some of those things were true for me. And then when I got to university, I joined the student rag and kind of really discovered this amazing feeling of power that can come from just being like a small person who can cause a lot of trouble for big people I think that's what I really felt like I I remember kind of being like uh, you know doing reporting on the the vice chancellor of the university and his kind of outrageously profligate spending of university money on very on university credit cards and kind of how he was like splashing cash on all kinds of lavish travel and you know whining and dining and it just like obviously just absolutely enraging him. I remember our joy at like going and posting a copy of the paper through the the door of his Grace and Flavor house on the campus and kind of just feeling like I'm just a kind of little nobody, but I've really pissed this guy off. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it felt like someone needs to be asking these questions. And I remember that feeling like, wow, this this is kind of amazing. And then, yeah, I remember getting my first job in journalism at the Daily Telegraph newspaper in the UK and writing a story that really enraged David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, and feeling this kind of sense of like, wow, I'm just like a a 22-year-old kid. (laughs) Um, And these people have to like answer my questions. I don't know, there was something in that. But I think also like I had early experiences as well when I worked for the Yorkshire Post writing about like refugee families who were being treated really, really abominably by the British government. And I remember also just having a sense of like these people just have no voice here and there's an opportunity to kind of combine those things of like using that ability to hold power to account and make the powerful set up and listen and answer questions but and kind of using it to try to give voice to people who feel silenced and feel no one's listening and the Latifa story is an interesting one for that because this is a princess um and so not an obvious candidate for a person who it feels like marginalized and kind of voiceless, but actually I think to be born into the confines of one of these royal families where you are kind of paraded publicly as a sort of emblem of the glorious advancement of the the state and of women within the state. And then actually like so utterly robbed of any kind of agency and really comprehensively silenced like it feels a really nightmarish situation and so yeah so it felt good to be able to get that story that she had so wanted to be out there to get some of that out there but it's not a happy ending and you know some people get into investigative journalism maybe because they've had experiences where the world or institutions have either harmed them or made them feel small and then like you say this idea that the small person can now create all this trouble and agitate and give voice to concerns or attack powerful institutions. But then if those institutions don't change or the story doesn't have a happy ending, does that then risk feeling like 
even worse afterwards? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly not a happy ending to this story. I think that something I've come to feel over many years of kind of exposing the misdeeds of very powerful people or institutions is that sometimes you have great impact and things really do change and you can really feel like, wow, that story really made things a little bit better. But a lot of the time, things don't change or things change in a fairly superficial way and then kind of revert to the way they were before. And it can be really depressing and demoralizing. But I, I think that ultimately the truth just has its own value and it just does matter, you know, that these experiences are not erased and that there's a record of what's happened. And so, and I think that that was really clear in Latifah's writings that she didn't want this to be erased. That was a word she kept using. She said, I will not allow years of helplessness and dehumanization to be erased. I won't allow them to do it. And just that kind of bearing witness and putting that story out into the world felt important. But I think I sort of come to accept that sometimes just having told the truth basically matters and has to be enough. Well, we should say you also, you've obviously done stories and written books that have caused change, the World Cup and FIFA being one example. But that's an interesting one because you exposed all this corruption FIFA around the World Cup and then things changed and they didn't change. Like they cleaned house, but also the World Cup still took place. Yeah. Exactly as it was given in the first place on the corrupt basis. Yeah, that was a perfect example. You know, we we did a load of reporting and exposed how... Qatar had paid bribes on an industrial scale to buy the rights to host the 2022 World Cup and, you know, kind of toppled a whole load of members of the FIFA Executive Committee who voted for the World Cup to go to Qatar and, you know, did a load of reporting that played a part in toppling Seth Blatter as well and ending his multi-year run as president of FIFA. And yet, as you say, you know, I just had to like sit and watch the World Cup go right ahead in Qatar, <laughs> you know, eight years later. Um, you know, I'd done a lot of reporting on, on political corruption in Britain and I'd kind of been used to you expose some corrupt politician for taking backhanders or something of that sort. And you publish the story and they put their hands up and say, you got me. And there's like a, you know, there's a, some sort of parliamentary investigation and sanctions are issued and there are consequences. And you can kind of say that we did this work and we exposed this and this was the outcome. And then with FIFA, we published this absolute boatload of evidence of this unbelievably rampant corruption throughout that organisation. And they just said, there's no evidence. This isn't true. It's just not real. And they just outright denied reality. And it was kind of amazing to me to, to sit and watch Seth Blatter stand up and tell the FIFA Congress in Brazil ahead of the 2014 World Cup, this is not true and, you know, we'll defeat these lies. And, you know, I was really genuinely like, but he's just outright lying. <laughs> like He's just outright. I kind of couldn't believe it. And I really think that that tells you that 2014 is a much more innocent time because uh, now we're very, very used to that sort of spectacle of public figures just blatantly denying you know denying reality um and you know that just by issuing a denial you can kind of kick up enough confusion and cause enough kind of cognitive dissonance around a story that you can kind of make it go away um and yeah the, the fifa example is a great example of that it caused a lot of waves there were a lot of investigations there were indictments there were criminal inquiries there were there were suspensions there were resignations 
it felt like a lot of impact and then the world cup just went right ahead in Qatar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, um but everybody knows that world cup was bought and to a large extent that was a PR exercise by Qatar. It was a sports washing exercise. They were attempting to launder their global reputation and actually everybody knows that they bought it. And that's kind of what I mean that we got the truth out there and and I think that just has to be enough otherwise you drive yourself crazy. Yeah. Well, another way that that was an innocent time was that was the rise of online media like BuzzFeed News. Uh, so we're sort of talking in a somewhat inauspicious time, I guess you could say, uh, because BuzzFeed News is no longer with us. My wife also worked there. You worked there. But I did want to talk about that era a little bit. Like, I remember that was a big deal when, like, investigative reporters and editors started going to BuzzFeed News specifically and also other places like it. And what did that sort of time mean for you in terms of your career? Because you were deep in the kind of like newspaper world of London. Like, what did that mean when you kind of like made this jump? Yeah, I really, I remember being approached by Mark Shoots, who is the legendary former investigations editor at BuzzFeed News and just an all-round wonderful human being and a truly genius editor. And he approached me when I was still working as deep in the FIFA investigation at the Sunday Times, working for the Insight team, which is their kind of very like long-running and storied investigations team. And I like literally had not heard of BuzzFeed. I'd kind of had my head under a rock working on this FIFA story and I just had no idea what they were doing and kind of Googled them and saw a lot of cat gifts and felt like confused about why this person wanted to talk to me about investigations. And then I remember going for coffee with Mark um, and coming away just so dazzled by his vision for building out like a truly bold and creative place to do investigative journalism on the internet because it felt so exciting it really felt like a new dawn and like wow you know they've, they've found a way to pay for really serious journalism like to make the internet pay for this um and you know I remember Mark saying you're going to do your best work and you're going to have the time of your life doing it and like boy was that true you know it was just an amazing place to work I remember one of our first investigations on the UK team was we investigated a company called Leica Mobile, which is uh, was at the time the biggest corporate donor to the Conservative Party. It's a telecoms company. Um, we had an allegation that they were laundering large amounts of money by depositing rucksacks stuffed with cash at the post office, like at branches of the post office all over London. And we decided the way to try to prove this was to surveil these people. So we spent weeks and weeks, like this team of 20-something reporters plotted up outside Leica Mobile's depot in East London. Like, and every time this van left with these three guys who were carrying all this cash, we would set off in our cars and chase them all over London and jump out of our cars and kind of follow them into the post office and, and film these cash transactions um, that were going on. And um, we ended up having to invest a lot of, like, a lot of resource in various different kind of wigs and disguises and all kinds of <laughs> hidden camera kit. Um, and I just really felt like what other place would let a load of kind of 20 something reporters loose on this kind of madcap caper as like our first reporting gambit on this new UK team. But they just kind of absolutely backed us to the hill and just kind of trusted that something creative and interesting would come of it. And as a result of our reporting, the French authorities opened a massive investigation into Leica Mobile and Leica's currently standing trial in Paris for money laundering oh, wow. um, as a result of that reporting, which is like all these many years later. Um, but that, you know, it was just like this, it was this amazing time to be doing journalism because they really, they, they gave us so much freedom and funding and time 
to do really, really ambitious work. And I think that's quite a rare thing. And I think that the way that BuzzFeed backed us was incredibly expansive and generous and ultimately not sustainable in the long term. But I think we did a load of work that a lot of us are really, really proud of. And it launched a lot of careers. And, you know, I mean, I just feel so grateful to have been part of it. And I mean, now that it, I guess, did prove unsustainable or was decided that it would no longer continue, how does that make you feel about sort of the future of the kind of work that you do? Because it's extremely resource intensive. Obviously, you found a home at The New Yorker, but in a broad sense, do you feel like other people will get a chance to experience that, that feeling that you experienced with the resources and the freedom to do that, or that that was a real kind of like one in a hundred years kind of chance to do that? You know, I do think that working in investigative journalism, you sort of are in a fairly constant state of sort of existential dread about, are we going to be allowed to continue doing this thing that is like so fraught with risk and so time intensive and so resource intensive. It does feel like, wow, is anyone really going to keep funding this? And yet it does continue to flourish and, you know, we've just all been reading ProPublica's incredible reporting on the sort of corporate capture of the Supreme Court. And I think that I feel like having ridden out a few of these kind of storms now in my career, like, I feel like you kind of get to a point where I, I sort of just have an innate faith that investigative journalism, like nature, will always find a way. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for all the time. It was It was great to talk to you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to Heidi Blake for coming on. Her book from a couple years back is From Russia with Blood. I do recommend you check it out. The show this week was edited by Susan Peterson. Our show notes were by Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. We do this show in partnership with Vox. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.